Since the dawn of time, we've shared stories. They remind us of who we were, who we are, and who we wish to be. Through story, our ancestors speak to us, passing on wisdom and truth from the past. And stories prepare us for the future, if only we listen. Welcome to episode number three of Listen. My name is Daniel Foytek, and I love a good story. If you're here, hopefully you do too. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back to hear more stories. And of course, hello to any new listeners. This podcast is called Listen, and it's about one of my favorite activities, listening to great stories. As I always say, Listen is your show. It will grow by sharing. So if you love story, please share it with your friends and family. It's really easy to do. It helps us increase awareness about traditional telling. And of course, as I also always say, if you know a great storyteller who is working on building their following and who we should feature on this show, contact me at feedback at ninthstory.com and let me know. The story featured in this episode was recorded live at the 2015 National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. So a big thanks to Susan O'Connor of the International Storytelling Center for allowing me to record at the festival. You can get more information on the International Storytelling Center and the National Festival by visiting them online at storytellingcenter.net. Today's featured teller is Adam Booth. Adam's storytelling blends traditional folklore, music, and an awareness of contemporary Appalachia. I had the great privilege of meeting Adam at the 2015 Three Rivers Storytelling Festival and then getting a chance to record him at the 2015 National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro. Please support Adam and the other tellers you hear on this podcast by picking up one of their CDs and attending their live tellings whenever you can. You can find Adam at adam-booth.com. It's a great story that you're about to hear, definitely tied into Appalachian culture. And I'm not going to say too much. It's just a fun story. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm your MC, Lynn Ford from Columbus, Ohio. Adam is both a mentor and a student. He teaches Appalachian studies and storytelling at Shepherd University. And he studies with Debbie Thomason as an apprentice. 
the recipient of an NSN J.J. Renault mentorship grant, but that has extended into a lifelong friendship between Dovey and Adam. He's here today to share something very special with you, a gift from his own storytelling skills, contemporary Appalachian skills, and traditional folklore and folktale. Please welcome to share his story, Ashton, Mr. Adam Booth. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad that you made the journey up here. I understand that it's raining down at the library tent, but there's a chance of snow up here at the Jonesboro Alps. So, uh, but really, it is an honor to have this, so many people. It's, it's humbling to see you all here. When I was in graduate school, uh, I studied musicology, and I wrote my master's thesis on a composer who was friends with Bernstein and Copeland. His name was Lucas Foss, and I got to go up to Boston and interview him shortly before his death. And at the end of the interview, which went into my thesis, he said one of the most touching things to me, which has stayed with me, and I want to share it with you. He said, thank you for caring. So that you are here, I want to thank you for caring. I want to share a story with you today that is a special story to me. I'm sure if you've heard me tell yesterday, you know that I tell some tall tales. Um, also, is it okay if I scoot this that way about that much? I'm getting rained on. right there, which is why uh, I saw Reggie. You had the umbrella, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could put it, yeah. I might have to call in for that. Um, I've been inspired by the playwright August Wilson who devoted his life to writing a cycle of plays called the Pittsburgh Cycle, as it's often called. And it's a set of ten plays that take place for each decade of the 20th century. And I want to do that with storytelling. I want to tell a set of ten long stories that retell traditional folk tales and set them in Appalachia, my home, looking at important characters and events in Appalachia and also adding some music and a little bit of my own storytelling narrative and twist to it. So that's what I'm going to share with you today, one of those stories. I really hope you enjoy it. Ashton. Ashton, get over here and make me one of them musics. Ashton turned around from that hot skillet, looked across that front room at her husband, Billy. She cocked her head to one side and said, Now, Billy, I done told you a thousand times, I don't make no musics. I sing songs. All right, then. You move that sassy little behind of yours over here. And you sing me one of them songs. She shot him a glance. 
All right. And then she took her time moving to the seat next to him. Along the way, she picked up her guitar, made herself real comfortable right next to him, and slowly started thumbing those strings. How about this one? Oh, beautiful damsel in the garden, the soldier he was passing by, and he stopped to view one single lady, saying, pretty fair miss, would you fancy me? You're not the man of noble honor. You're not the man I had taken you to be. For you wouldn't impose on a single lady who's fitting for your bride-to-be. Yeah, that's one I like. Sing me a little more of it. I have a true love in the army. And he's been gone for seven long years. And if he's gone for three years longer, no man on earth shall marry me. Ashton was born at the beginning of the century, right around the turn. In a little coal mining community not far from the Cumberland Gap. That place where Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia are all pushing at each other to get out of the way. She had been born into this little coal mining town, and everything there was coal mining. Her daddy had died down in the coal mine, just like her granddaddy. And soon enough, her husband Billy would die down there too. Ashton didn't have a whole lot going for her. She wasn't what you would call pretty. She wasn't very tall. She had a long, low brow. She had a shorn cliff of a nose, thin lips, a weak chin, large cheekbones, and tiny little eyes the color of the coal that her husband mined out of the ground. A sad look always was on her face. She had big, bushy hair, nesty hair, that was the color of a squirrel's pelt when the winter would be real bad that year. <laughs> but the one thing she did have going for her was her singing voice. See, when Ashton was a little girl, she had learned all the old love ballads from her grandmother. And in secret, she learned to play the guitar a little bit against her daddy's wishes. Whenever he caught her thumbing those strings, he'd say something like, Give it to me, Ashton. You know no woman don't play no guitar. But she learned anyway. She learned to sing those songs from her grandmother, and she carried that tradition in her heart. Her husband loved those songs. Even now, when she was a bit older, in her upper 20s, and her... <laughs> And her body was starting to fill out to look more like those women in the old country where her grandparents had come from. Billy was just as in love with her as the day they'd met whenever she'd sing one of those songs. Billy calls me his tanager. That's right. 
That's right, Ashton, you're my tanager. Like one of those real pretty birds that sits high up in the tree somewhere you don't always see them, but you can hear that sweet song they sing. And every day, as he would be preparing to go down into the mine, Ashton would pack his tin up with a meal so that when she put it in his hands, in those rough, dirty, calloused hands, she knew he would take that meal with him and have something warm in his belly for that shift that went all the way to midnight. And she'd sing him one of those old songs so that she knew that he would have a song in his heart She'd watch as the screen door would slam and it's jam and he would walk down that dusty road to the number seven mine knowing that he'd be all right that night. Now you might think that Ashton is kind of a funny name for a young woman, but it wasn't for her, it was a family name. She'd been given her mama's maiden name. And Ashton was also a bit of a foretelling on her life. See, coal miners don't make a lot of money. And they didn't have a whole lot. And whenever she could, she would pick up extra work around the town. And usually, for a woman like Ashton, that meant cleaning houses. But since most of the people in that town were also coal miners, there was usually only one house she went to clean. That house that was a little bit bigger than all the rest, built slightly different than the other houses in the town there, the operator's house, where the coal mining operator, Mr. Ferguson, and his wife and their young daughter lived. And that's where she was on this particular day, on her knees, into the chimney, packing out the ashes, singing a song to herself to help the time pass. Perhaps your true love, he is wounded. Perhaps he's on some battlefield slain. Perhaps he's to some fair girl married. Perhaps you'll never see him again. When the Lady Ferguson entered the room, Ashton, come here. Ashton backed out a little bit, stood up and ran her hands over her skirt and her blouse, which were covered in dust. Her face was sooty. She looked in the direction of the Lady Ferguson and her daughter, but not in their eyes, always down a little bit. Ma'am? Ashton, come here. Ashton moved across the room, past that table, and stood there a few feet away from the woman and her daughter. Ashton, I want you to teach our daughter one of those songs that you know. Ma'am, Ashton, teacher, one of the really pretty ones. You know the songs that other people don't know or remember anymore. Teacher, one of the very pretty ones. And make sure she knows all of the words to it. Ma'am, Ashton, don't you want to know why I want you to teach our daughter one of your songs? Ma'am, It was in the newspaper. It's right there on the table. Go see for yourself. Ashton turned over, and there on the table was folded in quarters, the paper. She picked it up, looked down the length of it, brought it down and said, I don't see it. What is it? She said, it's right there in the corner under the advertisement. Look again. 
I can't find it. Maybe you could just read it to me. The Lady Ferguson took the paper and said, it's right here, Ashton. It says, a representative of the Victor Talking Machine Company will be in Bristol for 10 days to make recordings of hillbilly music. They're recording music now, Ashton. You can purchase it and play it on machines in your home so you don't have to go and listen to people perform the music anymore. Ashton looked down towards the Lady Ferguson's knees. Ashton, they are paying people to record music. Do you understand what I'm telling you? If you excuse me, I got work to do. She turned around and went back to the chimney and got on her knees again. And even though she hadn't answered the Lady Ferguson, she had heard every word. And that idea just roiled around inside of her head, made its way down next to her heart, and pounded with yearning so that the next day that pounding had gone into her heart and was overtaking the nerves that she was trying to push down. And finally, she had gained the courage to bring up the idea. As she was packing that tin, she held it tight. Billy, I was thinking, you and I, we, we never took us a vacation. What do you think we got, got away and, and took a vacation? Just you and me. He placed his hands on that pail, his calloused, rough hands. Ashton, what are you talking about? Well, I was thinking that, you know, we've never been to a city before. Well, you think we, we take us a trip over to Bristol? He pulled that tin out of her hands and said, Ashton, you know we can't do that. Well, well, Billy, I was I was thinking that maybe we could go there for a reason. I heard that they was recording music there, and since I'm your little tanager, we could go there and I could record some of my musics that you like so much. They're paying for it. And since we're always hard up on money, I thought it would just help us out. He took that tin and threw it down on the chair. Ashton, that's fool talk. Where'd you get those ideas in that little head of yours? Don't you understand what kind of place we live in? This is a coal mining town, and I am a coal miner. I go down into that hole every single day, and I mine that coal, and I bring it back up here, and then I come home and go to sleep, and I go back into that hole and mine the coal out, and that is how we make our money. Don't you understand that? Ain't nobody going to pay you for none of your musics. Nobody does that, especially a woman like you. Don't you understand what your place is? You are a coal miner's wife. It is your job to make that tin of food for me so when I go down there, I can remember you, baby. He picked that tin back up and said, Now, as he brushed that calloused forefinger under her chin and she turned, Make me one of them musics. Well, if he's wounded, I hope he's happy. Or if he's on some battlefield slain. Or if he's to some fair girl married, 
I'll love the girl that married him. The screen door slammed in its jam and he headed down that dusty road. And just after midnight when he came back in, Ashton was already in the bed. Rolled over to one side, hoping that he wouldn't notice she was still awake. It was three days later. She was humming to herself, packing up his tin, placed it in his hands, and watched as the screen door slammed and he walked down that dirt road and just disappeared off in the distance toward the number seven line. And as soon as he was gone, she closed the front door. She'd been thinking nonstop about going to Bristol. And even though he had told her no, she had decided yes. Because this is what was going to change their lives. She turned the key in the lock and walked directly to her room. There in front of the bed was that old footlocker, her grandmother's chest. She opened it up and pulled out her dress, the one dress she owned. She was going to the city and knew she needed to dress up, so she laid it down on the bed, stripped off her clothes, put her dress on, smoothed it down. It didn't quite fit the way it had once, but it was going to have to do. She turned around and went toward the front, picked up the neck of her guitar, but then set it back down. See, she was going to have to get to Bristol on the train and wasn't sure if she'd be able to take this guitar with her. Just had to make do. She went back to the door, unlocked it, opened it, and looked through that screen door. She looked ahead. Not just in space, but in time. All right, Ashton. You got to do this. She went out the door, closed the front door, let the screen door slam, and headed off towards the, where the train tracks were. The train was sitting there and just on the other side of the coal mining operator's house. And she walked down that dusty road. And as she went, little children started laughing and pointing. And the adults who were holding their hands looked off in the other direction. She just kept going. See, it wasn't often that you would see a fully grown woman walking down the main street in her wedding dress. But she had a mission. So she kept going. This is what you got to do, Ashton. Don't mind none of their talk. This is what you got to do. And finally, she was standing on the other side of uh, the Ferguson's home. She looked up at that train. It was big and heavy and standing there. All right, Ashton, you got to get on this train. This is going to change your future. Now, she didn't have a ticket for the train. She was going to have to hitch the train. And she stood there looking at it, something she'd never done before, but she had a mission. And as she looked at the train, the wheels started to move. And up there at the top of that engine, she could barely see the handle of the shovels. The fireman was heaving the coal in. And the train started going slow. But her heart was racing. 
And she watched as the next car went. All right, Ashton, she thought, you can do this. And here come the first of the box cars. It was picking up speed, and she saw the doors were open, and this one was full of cargo. The next car came by. All right, Ashton, you can do it. And as the next one came by, she thought, if I'm going to get on this train, oh, i got to start moving. She took off running alongside next to it, but she had this long wedding dress on. And her legs were short and thick, and she couldn't run nearly as fast as the train was going, even though it wasn't at top speed. She ran along, looking over her shoulder, trying not to trip and get caught up on the hem of her dress. And then she saw the next train, the train car that was coming. The doors were open also, and there was a nice metal handle coming off of it. And as it came by, she reached up and was able to grab onto it. But she couldn't manage to swing her other arm up and catch hold of it. And it was starting to drag her just a little bit. And her dress was getting dirty now. She was drug along the ground, and she swung with all her might like this. And the next thing she knew, a hand was holding on to hers and pulling her up into that car. As her eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, she looked over, and on the other side, the doors of this car were closed, but there were large slats of wood that had holes between them, and knives of sunlight shone through. She looked over in the corner. There were a few men shooting dice at the ground. There were bales of straw here and there and plenty of loose straw all around. And as the wind came in, the open door that she'd come in from, it picked up some of that straw and turned it around in a whirlwind, put it back down and picked it up. And as she was looking all around, she hadn't noticed that the hand that had pulled her in there was still holding on. And he'd been talking to her. She looked up. Huh? What'd you say? I said... I sure feel bad for that fella. (laughs) What are you talking about? She looked up at this man. He had a wiry beard. His hair was kind of long and back this way. His face was leathery. He was tall, sinewy, but strong. His clothes were kind of cut up. And he smiled. His lips made a real pretty shape, but he was missing some of his teeth. The fellow you left at the altar. (laughs) She pulled her hand back and said, Oh, shoot, I didn't leave nobody at the altar. Well, then why are you dressed like that? Because I'm going to the city. I'm going to Bristol. They're recording songs there. And I'm a singer. And I'm going to go and record me some of my songs there. Oh, is that so, little lady? Well, wherever you're going, you're welcome to stay here. My name is Parch, and I've been riding these rails just about as long as since I was able to stand up, just like most of the rest of these guys, and we know every direction and every rail like the back of our hands. Make yourself at home. He turned and hollered over at the guys who were shooting dice in the corner and said, Hey, fellas, this bride here says she's going to Bristol. Says she's a singer. What do you say we sing one of our songs? He walked over to where there were some bales of straw, and from behind he pulled up a guitar. It was missing a few strings. 
little beat up, but it would do the job. Ashton watched as Parch laid himself down with his back up against one of those bales, one leg stretched out, the other one up like a rooftop, and he began thumbing in a three-quarter time. Thum, 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 thum. Thum, thum, thum. I'm riding on the rails. I'm riding on the rails. And when I get there, I'll turn right around. I'm riding on the rails. And the music had caught the guy's attention from the corner. They kept the dice on the floor, turned around, and came over. Parch watched as Ashton was about to sit down right next to him. He didn't want her to dirty her dress. So he handed the guitar off to one of these fellows who just picked right back up in time. We've got no place to call home. We've got no place to call home. So when we get there, we'll turn right around. We've got no place to call home. Parch was digging behind some of that straw, and he pulled up this long stick with a poppy red kerchief tied up. He undid it and pulled out, as if by magic, this long yellow scarf made out of silk. He flicked it like this, and it unfurled. He flicked it again over here, and it just situated itself on top of those wide floorboards, and then he gestured, and Ashton sat down. She got pretty comfortable, put her head back on some of that straw and listened to the song with a big smile on her face. We're always homeward bound. We're always homeward bound. So when we get there, we'll turn right around. She was out. The next thing she knew, she was being shook on the shoulders. <gasps> huh? What? And she sat right up. And Parcher's gap-toothed grin was right in her face. Didn't you say you were going to Bristol? Yeah, I am. Well, this is Bristol. She jumped up. Oh, my goodness. She realized that the train had stopped. Oh, thank you so much for getting me up. I got to get down here. Y'all been real nice to me. Hold on a minute. I don't know what fella you're coming here to marry. But I want you to look a little nicer. He picked up that yellow silk scarf by the end, flicked it, and then wrapped it around that bushy hair of hers, tied it underneath, said, Now, now you can go. And the same hand that had brought her up onto that train car was the one that was lifting her back down. Thank you, Parch. Thank you, fellas. Hold on now. Do you know how you're getting back home? Back home? It had never occurred to her how to even get back home. <laughs> no, she said, I, I, I don't know what to do. Well, what time do you need to be home? Well, Billy gets off his shift at midnight. So I guess I need to be back home by midnight. All right, well, the last train that heads back your way leaves here just after 9 o'clock. So you better be on that train or... You won't be home. Thank you. She kissed his hand, let go as that train started moving again. 
the men waved and she waved back as that train just went down the rail and disappeared. And as the last car went, she looked over and there was an enormous yellow brick train depot. She looked down the rails. She was up on a hill and she looked down that hill and there was Bristol. It was a city. She had never been to a city in her whole life. She'd only heard about them. She didn't even know what they looked like. Across the main street right there, there was this metal sign that spanned the whole way with an arrow pointing in both directions. She followed down that road, and there were buildings made out of bricks on both sides of the street, taller than any she'd ever seen. She counted the windows to see how tall they were. One, two, three stories high. There were automobiles parked right there on the main street. And she looked and could see on some of the side streets, horses tied up to posts. She had arrived. And she took off running just as fast as her little legs would carry her down that hill. I'm in Bristol. I'm here. And she wasn't even looking and ran right into a gentleman who had a suit on. You should watch where you're going. Oh, I'm really sorry, she said. Excuse me. Do you happen to know where they're recording the music here? He said, well, of course I do. Everybody does. You just follow this sidewalk to the first building right here, the old hat factory. That's where they're making the recordings. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. She ran down that sidewalk, which she was not used to. She got to that building, turned the handle, walked in, and there was a staircase that led up to the second floor. And she knew that's where she needed to go because she could hear the music coming down. As she walked every one of those steps, her heart started pounding faster and faster. And the music got louder and louder. And when she got to the top, there was a little landing and a door with a glass window. And the music that was played in there was coming out of that glass window. It swirled around her and surrounded her heart. My heart is sad and I'm in sorrow, yes, all for the one I love. When will I see him again? No, never till I meet him in heaven above. She looked through that glass window, and there in the center of the room were three musicians. There was a man, he was tall and thin, and he had a hat on that was the color of calf skin, and he had a fiddle tucked under his arm. Next to him was a shorter woman that had an auto harp cradled like a baby, and she was singing and strumming. And on the other side, there was a woman that was singing and playing a guitar, and that's where Ashton's gaze stopped because she had never seen another woman who could play the guitar. Oh, bury me under the weeping willow, yes, under the weeping willow tree, so he may know where I am sleeping, and perhaps he will weep over me. She looked in front of them. There was this big contraption. There was a part on it that was spinning around and around. She looked past it, and over in the corner there was a man, and in this corner there was a man. The man over there had his arms crossed. He was dressed in a three-piece suit that he had stripped down to one piece, a white dress shirt, pants, and he was watching intently. Over in this corner, the other man in a three-piece suit also. He had a lit cigarette in his hand, but he wasn't smoking it. He was just watching. 
They told me that he did not love me. I could not believe it was true. Until an angel whispered softly, he is proving untrue to you. And the music just came all around her. And she knew she was in her place. This is where she belonged. These people were her people. Oh, bury me under the weeping willow. Yes, under the weeping willow tree. So he may know where I'm sleeping and perhaps he will weep over me. And when they were done, the men stepped forward. The one who was lesser dressed stopped that contraption. The one who was still fully dressed went to the man in the calfskin-colored hat and said, Well, AP, what do you think about that one? Well, there, Ralph, I'm going to have to ask these ladies here. Sarah? Maybell? What do you think about that one? The woman with the auto harp looked up and said, I think we better do it again. All right, Ralph, we'd like to do it again. Okay, he signaled to the other gentleman who took off the tall round part and put another one of those cylinders on, set it spinning. They went back to their corners and Ashton watched as they sang the whole song again. And when that was over, they did it again. And she just watched lovingly from outside of that window. And when they were happy, they put their instruments back in their cases shook hands with Ralph and the other gentleman and turned to go. Excuse me, ma'am. They walked down the stairs and the door was open and Ashton could see those two men talking to each other. And that was her chance. She ran in. Hello, I'm here. The men were startled. They turned. There's this strange looking woman in a wedding dress and a yellow silk scarf around her head. Can we help you? Yes, she said. Actually, maybe you can. I'm here to sing you some songs. Do you have an appointment? Oh, no, I don't have no appointment, but I'm here right now. I'll sing you some songs. You ready? We're very sorry, ma'am, but we're working on a very tight schedule. You'll have to come back tomorrow or the next day. Oh, no. Oh, no, I can't come back tomorrow. I'm here right now. I'm going to sing you some songs right now. I'm real good. Billy calls me his little tanager. You ready? You ready? And their hands were up, and they were pushing her back towards that door. We're very sorry, ma'am, but we're on a incredibly tight schedule and just can't see you right now. No, no, she said, I'm here right now. I'm real good. Just let me sing one of my songs or you'll love it. You'll make a recording of it. They pushed her back out to the landing and she'd had enough. So she just opened her mouth and started to sing. And by the end of the first line, their hands had gone down. Ralph looked at the other man and when she was done, he looked back at her and said, We might have time to record one song. (laughs) Come in. The other man led her over to that contraption and said, I I would gather that you've never used a microphone before. No, never even heard the word. What is it? Well, it's this thing right here in front of you, and any music that comes out of your mouth will get taken into it and put on this spinning cylinder right here. I'm going to get it started. We'll go back to our corners, and then you just start singing when you're ready and indicate when you're done. Oh, thank you all so much. This is real great, real nice of y'all. And he set that machine on, and the cylinder started turning, and they went back to their corners, and Ashton closed her eyes and just started singing her little heart out. How hard is a coal miner's life? 
You want to know the truth? Well, just ask his wife. You think the strife is hard, but you'll see the hard heart falls on me. Yes, because he loves me and he struts me and hugs me like I'm due. Oh, but then he won't kiss me. He's gonna miss me because my time will be through. Yes, I said first he hugs me and he struts me and loves me like I'm due. Oh, but then he won't kiss me. He's gonna miss me because my time will be through. And when she finished the song, the men were looking at each other and they looked back at her and Ralph said, did you write that song? Uh-huh. I sure did. Do you have others? Oh, I got all kinds of songs I could sing for you. Well, we'd like to record them all. He turned to his assistant and said, go check out the machine. The man went forward and looked at it and said, I'm going to need to tighten some things on it. Ralph turned to Ashton and said, ma'am, you can take a little break. How much time will we need The other man said, well, it'll probably take me about 15 minutes to get it set up. All right. Well, you can come back at about, oh, quarter after nine. Quarter after nine? She said, well, what time is it right now? (laughs) Well, 15 minutes before that. Well, what time is it now? Well, the clock's right there. Tell me, what time is it? Well, it's nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, she said. I gotta go, I gotta go. And she turned and was running back towards the door. No, ma'am, they said, wait, we want to record more of your songs. But they couldn't stop her. She was out the door and into the landing and they took off running after her. Wait, ma'am, wait, we're not done with you. When they got to the door, she was halfway down the stairs. They tripped over each other trying to get down there. But by the time they got to the bottom of the stairs, she was already running up the road. And when they went out the door, they saw a woman in a wedding dress, a yellow scarf climbing up onto a train car that was just starting to move forward. But ma'am, you didn't even tell us what your name is. She was gone. And it was three weeks later. Ashton was standing over the cast iron skillet. Two cut circles of bologna were dancing there. It was a special night. (laughs) She was singing to herself when she heard the screen door rattling in the jam. She turned and recognized the face immediately. Outside with his face pressed up against the screen. Hello? Hello, is anybody in here? She walked slowly towards the door. Hello? Excuse me, my name is Ralph Peer. I'm a representative of the Victor Talking Machine Company. Is anybody in here? And she slowly made her way to the door. Can I help you? Yes, he said, my name is Ralph Peer. I'm a representative of the Victor Talking Machine Company. I have a talking machine here in this chest. He pointed next to him, and there was a trunk. And I have a recording 
that I would like to play for you. I've been carrying it through all the little towns across these little hills, playing it for different people to see if anyone could recognize the woman's voice on this recording. I wonder if I might play it for you. It'll just take a few moments of your time. No. You don't gotta. It's me. He looked through the screen. It was darker inside the house and said, maybe I should just play it for you first. She said, no, you don't got it. It was me. It was in Bristol. I sang you a song and I ran out real early. I had to go. You wanted more, but I had to go. The story was right. But he looked at her and she did not look like the same person. Her hair was big and bushy. It wasn't combed. Her clothes were dirty and threadbare. Ma'am, I'm real sorry to bother you, but maybe if your mother is here or you have a sister that I could play this recording for. She said, I'll prove it to you. And she started singing the song. And his shoulders went down. And he exhaled. Ma'am, you are one hard person to find. <laughs> I took your recording back to our office in New York. My boss loved it. He wants to reproduce it and release it in the edition of 500. And he also wants to bring you up to New York to record those other songs you said you knew. Would you like to come? Great. I'll have two tickets sent to you by Western Union within two weeks, one for you and a guest. You'll be able to take the train from here up to New York. Thank you. He turned to go, picked up the handle, and then dropped it and turned back around and said, Oh, I almost forgot. And he reached in to his suit pocket. He pulled his hand out of his pocket, his fingers being both neat and slim. He pulled out this thin white envelope. Ashton watched, and a bit of jewel shone from his hand there. To his feet she fell, for it was him. This is your payment for the recording you've already made for us. A payment? She pushed the screen door open that wide. And he slipped that envelope through. She took it in her hands. Precious. Lifted the flap and pulled out the bill. How much is it? Why, that's the same payment we've given everyone who's recorded for us. Fifty dollars. Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? She wasn't sure if she was saying it out loud or in her head. Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? She hadn't even noticed that he had picked up the handle and pulled the crate on the way and was gone. Fifty dollars? Fifty dollars? They never had fifty dollars. She had never seen fifty dollars. 
$50. I got to tell Billy. I got to tell Billy I did it. She put the money back in the envelope and she turned and she ran into her room and put the envelope under her bed and then ran around the bed and then picked it back up and brought it back out to the front room and set it there on that seat where she always sang those songs for him so that when he came in the door, he would see it and know it was real. She slipped on her shoes and she was about to run out the door when something told her better. She turned around because she could smell burning. She went back to the skillet and pulled it off and said, I'll deal with that after a while. She turned back around, went out the door, the screen door slammed in its jam, and she took off just as fast as her thick little legs would carry her down that dirt road towards the number seven mine. And just as she left her house, over at the number seven mine, two miners had made their way up to the mouth to where the foreman and the superintendent stood. You got to get down there right now. It's bad. It's worse than we thought. They looked at their clipboards and then looked at the men. It's real bad. You know where that kettle bottom fell out earlier? Well, the whole ceiling's done, caved in. We got to get down there right now. Those four men climbed into those small, low mine cars. The train started pulling off just as Ashton arrived. And so when she got there, There was no one guarding. And she did something that she knew better than. Something that her daddy and her granddaddy and everyone in town had told her and everybody else never to do. She went into the mine. And when she got in there, that last low mine car was just starting to get covered into shadows and she jumped into it. This wasn't the first train she'd hopped on in her life. She crouched down, and as the last bit of light was taken away, she noticed there in the bottom was a little carbide lamp. She grabbed onto it and stayed real low. And it was just a few seconds before she was in complete darkness. She had to rely upon her feel. could tell she was going down, down, down down into the belly of the earth. When the train stopped, she peeked her head up just a little bit and could see there towards the front of those mine cars, little headlamps were fired on. The men got out. Soft beams of light were cast this way and they disappeared. She climbed out of that car, crouched down. It was damp. It was incredibly dark. She held her hand up against the reflecting pan of that carbide lamp and struck it across the striker and it lit up. A little warm beam of light and she used it and made her way down into one of those rooms where they had mined it out such that there were just pillars supporting the ceiling. Billy? 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 And the only response was the echo of her own voice. Billy, 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 Billy. She didn't see anyone. She didn't hear anything. And she decided to go back towards the train to the other side. She stood up and whacked her hat on, fell down. It's only that high down there. The lamp fell out of her hand and the top came open and the water poured out of it. It was now useless. 
So she had to crawl back until she could feel the rail and the mine car. She went around to the front of it, to the other side. I can feel that it went down a little bit. She thought she was in another room. Billy? Hello? Billy? Has anybody seen Billy? 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 The voice, the name just echoed through the empty caverns down there. Billy? Billy? And as she called out from somewhere deeper in the mine, a miner hollered out an epitaph. Fire in the hole! Fire in the hole! The next thing she knew, there was a sound louder than any she'd heard in her whole life. And it seemed that the whole world shook. And what had been the ceiling was now on the ground. And even though it was too dark for her to see it, she felt the whole thing. And as it fell down there, crushing her, she called out one last time, Billy! 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 And the name Billy reached the ear, Billy, of the owner. Ashton? Did you all hear that? Was that Ashton? But the miners weren't listening to Billy. They were trying to get out of there. Because that was the second fall in of the day. Come on, Billy, we got to get out of here. No, he said, I heard Ashton's voice. I think she's down here. And he ran off towards where those rocks had fallen in. There was a big pile not far from the mine cars. And they said, come on, Billy, we got to get out of here. We don't know when the next one's going to happen. It could be right here. That's two right here. The next one could be on you. No, he said, I think Ashton's down here. Look, and he ran over to where those rocks were and he could see coming out of the black rocks as his headlamp shone a beam of light. There was a pail. Lily white hand just coming right out. Ashton, and he looked over and recognized the wedding ring. Her grandmother's wedding ring. What in the name of all things holy are you doing down here, Ashton? He fell onto his knees and began trying to pull those large black boulders off of her body. Help me, help me. And they said, Billy, you got to get out of here. It's going to cave in again. He said, no, this is Ashton right here. We got to get her out. They said, Billy, we're going to leave you here if you don't come now. No, it's Ashton. It's Ashton. And he was pulling those boulders off of her try, and they were too heavy, some of them. And the train cars just left. Ashton, Ashton, Ashton. He had managed to pull enough of them off to see some of her body, and it really was her. And he wrapped his arms around her, his big, dirty arms with those huge foremuscles and callous, dirty hands. He pulled her all up off the ground there and kisses gave her one two three i am your long lost loving soldier i have returned for to rescue thee he pulled her body out of the rubble and he wasn't able to stand up the tunnel was too low, so he crouched over, and there wasn't enough room to put her over his shoulder or carry her like this, so he kind of had to drag her from behind, pulling that body that was still warm. He followed up the same path of those tracks, went and went, crying and cursing, angry and sad all at the same time, until finally he had made it to the place where he was almost at the mouth of that mine. The setting sunlight was just starting to shine in. 
but his anger was too great. So instead of taking her out, he let that loving anger overcome him. He sat her body down and turned around to curse her and to hug her. And I asked him, what is the meaning of this? And he looked down. And she was gone. He fell down to his knees because he realized what had happened. What every coal miner knew happened in that situation. He hadn't been dragging her body back. Her body was left, buried under those rocks down there. Her spirit had stayed with him to help guide him out of that mine and out of danger. And he could have counted from three to one. And then he felt and heard as the next fall-in happened where they had been. Her spirit had saved him. He was on his knees and the tears came down his cheeks, making little paths where coal dust had been. Ashton! 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 He grabbed his head, crying and moaning like a little boy. A little boy who was now lost and without his true love. And to her very end, she had done everything for him. He wept as that setting sunlight shone across his face. And 500 or more miles away, in a little office in New York City, an orphan voice sang from a spinning piece of wax. How hard is a coal miner's life? You want to know the truth? Well, just ask his wife. You think his strife is hard, but you'll see the hard heart falls on me. Yes, because he loves me and he struts me and hugs me like I'm do. Oh, but then he won't kiss me. He's gonna miss me. Cause my time will be through. Yes, I said first he loves me and he struts me and hugs me like I'm due. Oh, but then he won't kiss me. He's gonna miss me because my time will be through.
Adam thought he was going to get away from us. <laughs> but mama, his second mama, because his real mama's sitting right over there. Mama said, you stay right there. <laughs> because he deserved all the thanks that we could give him and more. And there's a little more that he wants to tell you about it, so please don't go anywhere yet. Thank you. The, to me, these stories uh, in the set that I was telling you about that I'm working on are like movies. And so I feel that they are due some credits. So I'm going to roll the credits for you right now. <laughs> if you don't know, the Bristol Sessions really happened in 1927 and then a little, some more again in 1928 over here in Bristol. Ralph Peer came from Victor. He had worked for OK Records and then Victor. They came down looking for this music that was untapped at that time, what they were calling hillbilly music, which later became a very derogatory term for that music. And so over time it came to be known as country music. It was in 1927 at the Bristol Sessions where a number of very famous country musicians were discovered um, from West Virginia, Blind Alfred Reed. Uh, the Carter family were there, as in my story. Um, Jimmy Rogers was found there. A lot of these great recordings were made that started what we now think of as country music uh, industry. It's called the Big Bang of country music. In my story, the ballad that is sung all the way through it is a ballad that I learned from Michael and Carrie Klein, two West Virginia... Yeah, some of you know them? Yeah. Um, and they had, they caught it. Uh, Michael recorded that version, or the version I learned from, uh, from Holly Hunley and Wavy Chapel, Southern West Virginia, a family of ballad singers from Southern West Virginia. The song that Ashton hears, the royalty in my Cinderella story um, singing, uh, is a Carter family song, the, the uh, Weeping Willow Tree. The hobo song that Parch sings and the coal miner's wife song are original songs that I created for this story. Thank you. <laughs> and just because a few people have asked me in the few times that I've told this story, Ashton is as real as we make her. Although you won't find her singing in the actual Bristol Sessions recordings. Thank you all for caring. Thanks for tuning in to episode number three of Listen. This episode featured a story by Adam Booth, Ashton. If you'd like more information on Adam and his work, please visit adam-booth.com and follow him on Twitter at Booth Stories. Big thanks to Joanna Demerst for some great stories in our last episode. Please share your love of story. Share the show. Helps us grow. The best support you can give us is to share the show and this episode in particular with your friends. You can follow us on Twitter at listen to story. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash story listeners. And soon you'll find us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, all the podcatchers out there. All work performed in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. 
Images used for the cover of this episode and on the Listen website are used with the permission of Adam Booth. Action stills were taken from a video recorded by Tyler Crane, and portrait photos were taken by Caitlin Stoneberger. The Listen theme is a selection from Better Start Walking and was performed and written by Robin Brown. For more information on Robin's work, please visit robinbrown.info. Closing music is also from Better Start Walking. Listen is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Full show notes with links and info can be found at www.storylisteners.com forward slash three.